This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we're going to begin with Alan Minsky, longtime program director at KPFK and now executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. We'll talk about the Democratic primary field and what Alan gleans from conversations on a trip to the European Parliament as part of a contingent of the American left. We then turn to an extended conversation with Mitch Abador, translator of Victor Serge's notebooks, newly published by the New York Review of Books, about Victor Serge, the Belgian-Russian anarcho-Bolshevik and lifelong left oppositionist who was one of the great writer-thinker activists of the 20th century. His contribution is especially attractive today because he never compromised his commitment to the creation of a society that defends human freedom, enhances human dignity, and improves the human condition. And he insisted that democracy was at the heart of the socialist project, and that if it wasn't democratic, it wasn't socialist. This makes him a contemporary as well as a man for our future. Serge's life as a maverick and renegade relegated him to the margins. He was always poor. His last exile was in Mexico. And a rich trove of his daily writings, his notebooks, were discovered among the papers of his third wife after her death in Mexico in 2003. They were published in France in 2012. And New York Review of Books has just published the English translation. And we're fortunate today to speak to the translator, Mitch Abador. All this when our program returns in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm really pleased to start with Alan Minsky in studio on the other side of the desk. Alan is the longtime program director at KPFK. He's now the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. And that brings Alan into contact with all of the left contingent as broad as it is, not just here in the United States, but in the world. And Alan just made a trip to the European Parliament. And we're going to talk about that as well as spend a little bit of time talking about what we always say, the conjuncture, which is the Democratic primary that is shaping up. Alan, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Great to be here, Susie Weissman. In your introduction, you described Victor Serge as a lifelong left oppositionist. I'd like to think of myself that way as well. (laughs) Well, I think it's great to follow in Victor Serge's shoes. And so let's just say then, you... As a progressive Democrat, which is, you know, that's a, okay, it's a weighty title, a weighted and weighty and even maybe sometimes controversial. But you just went to Europe to be at the European Parliament and to listen to the conversations because what's happening in the U.S. in some ways is kind of like a vanguard of the left in the world, which is just odd considering the last century. But on the other hand, there's parallel happenings in Britain, where Jeremy Corbyn is at the lead now of the Labour Party, the largest party in Europe. And there's rumblings elsewhere as people begin to become dissatisfied, not only with neoliberalism, but with the right-wing populism that has replaced it. Well, sure. And I will get to Europe in a second. But I do want to say this, and please forgive me, but you'll understand why I'm going to take a slight detour, which is that PDA is an organization that now I've been the executive director of for the past seven, eight months or so. But it is really the organization that is behind the revival of democratic socialism in the United States. Okay, how so? Because PDA was the organization that 
worked to draft Bernie Sanders to run for president, beginning in 2013 with the Run Bernie Run campaign. I think it's pretty fair to say without PDA's effort, because then we built a coalition of organizations and forces to try to draft Bernie Sanders with the Run Bernie Run campaign, that we wouldn't be where we are today. Because we not only were asking him to run, and he had some reluctance to run, we were demanding that he run as a Democrat. And it was him running as a Democrat and doing so well in the 2016 primaries that, of course, inspired people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to run for office. And now we're in a situation where Americans are talking about democratic socialism in the United States from across the pond in Europe and on the continent specifically, because, of course, we were invited to the European Parliament by the unified forces of the European left inside the parliament. And as a legacy of the labor Tony Blair years, they're actually affiliated officially with a more center left coalition there in Europe, though it was great that somebody from Corbyn's Labor Party did attend and participate in our dialogues. But they're looking from across the Atlantic at the United States. And this is such a change as the place that has the vibrant ascendant left. Crazy. Uh, I mean, of course, it's also true in the UK, but with Brexit going on, that's all a little bit hard to get their people's brains around what's transpiring with the UK and Brexit, the Labour Party's relationship to Europe, etc. You could say that Brexit is their Mueller report. It's all Brexit all the time there, and it's all Mueller all the time here. But maybe we'll get past that. Uh, Yes, and maybe (laughs) the world will get past those things. We shall see in time. But alas, so they're looking at the United States in the wake of the Sanders campaign, now Sanders being basically tied to the top of the polls in the Democratic primaries, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez clearly being as influential a political voice in our society as anyone short of Donald Trump over the past however many months it's been now, about 12 months. So yes, there's this ascendant left in the United States. The people in Europe wanted to speak to us. And what do we talk about? Well, look, we clearly have, I see it, and by the way, in my new position, I'm learning and trying to do as best as I can to speak in very broad strokes, so I understand what these kind of broad theses are going to be ways you can pick them apart. But there are three massive crises that the world faces right now, and they need and are crying out for an international coordinated left to address them. Okay, and what are those three crises? Okay, obviously one that cannot be handled by one country alone is the global climate emergency. And again, we need unified left response to this crisis in order to tackle it, to literally save humanity, as it were. And then there is the crisis of our global economic system, which came to the fore in the Reagan and Thatcher years, reached maturity in the Blair-Clinton years, the Washington consensus, neoliberalism, markets can cure everything. Well, guess what? It creates massive wealth inequalities. And really, even in comparatively prosperous countries, the vast majority of the population are stuck on a durable wheel, working harder and harder, more jobs, longer times. You you actually have real inflation in the United States in things that people need, like education, health care, rent. And so it's just a very difficult life. And the very general global economic coordination of the neoliberal system has to be addressed. So that's point number two, the climate crisis. Point number two is the broad international economic system. And three is the rise of ethno-nationalism, 
racism and nationalism around the world and how we need an international left and a coordinated international left to combat that as well. So all three require this, and that's what I went to Europe to talk with my European comrades about. That's brilliant. And I just want to say, too, because not only are we at the end of neoliberalism, it is discredited everywhere but has not died, but we're also in this stage of capitalism that's all about plunder. And, you know, as I talk to my students who are graduating and are faced, and I did a poll in my class, and they're the range is 25000 to 200000 in debt, which means that this is a generation who will not be productive mm -hmm. because they'll be servicing the debt their whole life. And it, this is the nature of the economy that it, you know, puts all of us in debt peonage and does nothing for, you know, sort of productive, creative investments in the future and instead saddles everyone. And so this is a reason that people have moved to the left because their future has been curtailed. And then they see the climate emergency as the most imperative one on top of that, because how are they even going to live and reproduce? And then I think, Alan, just very, very quickly, just to say, because these events in Sri Lanka show that, you know, this, as you call it, ethno-nationalism, but also religious wars are brewing in this period of literal obscurantism. But I think let's take it to an optimistic. And, and, and I should say, too, that I went as a part of a contingent because I did put it too much in the first person plural. Again, actually, I was invited. It was coordinated by our revolution, the organization uh, that Bernie Sanders started. And the political director of our revolution, David DeHalde, was participating. Maria Svart, the national director of the Democratic Socialists of America. And Alex Rojas, who currently is the executive director of Justice Democrats, participated as well. And again, it was just a great conference. And again, it's just the beginning of forging bonds of solidarity and communication and trying to conceive of the development of a powerful international left that can seriously address these things and take these issues on. And, uh, of course, the world is looking at the United States. We do have right now uh, two very strong left progressive candidates that are running in the primaries. And the person that PDA has already officially endorsed, Bernie Sanders, is at the top of the polls, along with the former vice president and just career neoliberal Joe Biden. <laughs> and, uh, I want to ask you, because first I wanted to ask if the sense in Europe was one of optimism, given no. that... No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Not at all. Well, here we, okay, then secondly. You know what's going to happen in the May parliamentary elections is there's a real sense that the far right, which is coordinated in part by Steve Bannon, with a lot of money behind it, is going to do better than it's ever done before. Now, the far left block is not actually expected to lose seats. It may even gain a few. The real decline is in the center left basically neoliberal social democratic parties that have sold out the working class and to neoliberalism, and they're just in precipitous decline across Europe. Tarek Ali had a great term for it. He called it the extreme center, and it's the extreme center that nobody wants. And we see even in France now, because they got an extreme centrist in power, Macron, and you've had the Yellow Vest movement protesting for, what is it, 21 weeks now a on now. a weekly mm -hmm. basis and mm -hmm. have met with horrendous violence. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the American news media is so preoccupied with the daily tweets and in the terms of Fox News with denigrating Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, that in America, we rarely hear about what happens in the rest of the world. But let's move to that because it's hard to ignore what happened when Biden announced on Thursday that he was part of this race. And then all of a sudden, the New York Times, the LA Times, all of them are all, it's all Biden all the time. And there's, when they talk about the race, I noticed that Bernie's at the very bottom, they go through all the other candidates. 
Beto, Buttigieg, you know, mm-hmm. barely even Elizabeth Warren doesn't get as much of, of a mention. And you get Biden as if, okay, finally somebody's entered the race who's going to win. And there's just no evidence that he's going to actually capture that. And I wondered what your thoughts were. Well, my thoughts are multivaried, of course. I think that Bernie Sanders and, to a degree, Elizabeth Warren are threats to the organization of our macro economy as it's been organized. And, and again, we're talking about really every component of capital Every branch of capital has its resources and its logic invested in the maintenance of the current system, which basically financializes everything. And when you, and then this is just in Thomas Piketty, when you have the financialization of everything, you're going to have increasing wealth inequality because who's going to benefit in an investment driven economy are the people who already have money. Okay. And everybody else is just again stuck on a gerbil wheel and it's debt peonage existence. And The way I look at it is that this neoliberal order from Reagan Thatcher through to 2007, 2008 was going along and then it burst. It exploded. They put Humpty Dumpty back together again with even more austerity and more wealth pouring up to the upper 1%, but the people were not buying it anymore. So now that we're 10, 12 years after the collapse of that and then putting it back together, where are we sitting politically? We have a rise of the far right around the world, in Europe, in the United States, uh, and we have rise of the left in the United States, and we have the center component trying to hold on to power, but you have all of capital and all of the resources of capital, including the mainstream media, backing this centrism that nobody really wants anymore, except for the people who still buy into the logic of meritocracy, etc., And we've seen, Alan Minsky, so many threats to the democratic order just with these new populist right-wing governments, including and especially, let's say, Donald Trump. But I wonder, you know, we've in the Democratic Party, they got rid of the superdelegates and they've allowed 20 people so far into the field. In earlier days, you remember, if they weren't didn't have enough money, they weren't seen as serious. Dennis Kucinich and others were laughed out of it. They barely made it to the debate stage. Now they seem to want to crowd the debate stage. And I see it as a way of drowning out Sanders mm-hmm. by having so many others. And we know that the superdelegates will be only brought in if there's a second round. But if you have 20 candidates in the first round, it's going to be very hard well, I think, not I think, to- I think they do have to realize that there's an incredible risk. It is true that there were legions of Bernie Sanders supporters who left the cycle in 2016, the election cycle of 2016, feeling highly aggrieved. And the idea that they could pull those kind of shenanigans off and not fracture the party would be a very real risk. Uh, I don't really know how this plays out. I do think Bernie Sanders is a very viable candidate with really, again, again, legions, pardon my lack of creative vocabulary again, but to use the same word again, legions of supporters across the country. He's number one. He's really ahead, isn't he? I mean, you know, and of course, it's really uh, contemptible the manner in which they tarnish him in the press by any measure, even by what they would have been saying for years, because they do have to give lip service to the idea that money in politics and buying elections is a bad idea, that a candidate would arise that is actually supported by small money donations is clearly exemplary of democratic process relative to where we've been in big money politics. But still, they have to denigrate them. Why do they have to denigrate them? Because, look, why is capitalism organized the way capitalism is organized currently? It is organized this way because capitalists believe this is the way that they can maximize their profit, maximize their power, wealth, and political influence. And Bernie Sanders challenges that. Okay, he challenges the very fundamental logic of it. He is not much more, right, let's be honest, than a 
radical reversion to progressive Keynesian politics. And this Roosevelt, is, but also says, right. stressing not just the Bill of Rights, but the Economic Bill of Rights right. that Roosevelt tried to put forward. But this challenges the logic of contemporary, real, existing capitalism yeah. and money power in the United States. Because it isn't a challenge to capitalism itself, but it's a challenge to the contemporary money power of the United States. And to a good degree, Warren is as well, but more so Sanders. And one of the great sins of Sanders is that he organizes the masses of people into a not me, us movement, because he recognizes it's going to take a struggle to change the economic order of our society. So, yes, PDA, we are the people who endorse Bernie Sanders before anybody else does. So don't get confused when you see our name, folks. We're not the Center for American Progress. We're the Progressive <laughs> Democrats of America, and we are very much on the left progressive side. And I'm even, heck, I'm even a card-carrying member of the Democratic Socialists of America, proudly so. And as am I and Alan Minsky, we've run out of time, but thank you so much for that incredibly vibrant 15 minutes. And we don't often get you here, and it's always a pleasure and a treasure. When we do, Alan Minsky is now executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America and a longtime program director at KPFK. And I'm Susie Wiseman, and this is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. And I'm really pleased to have Mitch Abador with me for the very first time. And we're going to be speaking about Victor Serge, who was a Belgian-Russian anarcho-Bolshevik and lifelong left oppositionist. Those are terms that we will hopefully define somewhat. But he was one of the great writer-thinker activists of the 20th century. And his contribution is especially attractive today because he never compromised his commitment to the creation of a society that defends human freedom, enhances human dignity, and improves the human condition. And he also insisted that democracy was at the heart of the socialist project, that it could be said right for today that if it wasn't uh, democratic, it wasn't socialist. And that makes him a contemporary as well as a man for our future. And Mitch and I are going to talk about Victor Serge, but we begin because Serge was a man who was born in one exile and died in another, was always poor, and his last exile was in Mexico. And a rich trove of his daily writings, his notebooks, were discovered among the papers of his third wife, the anthropologist Laurette Sejournet, after her death in Mexico in 2003. And they were published in France in 2012, but the New York Review of Books has just published the English translation. And we're really fortunate today to speak to the translator, Mitch Abador. Mitch is a writer and a translator. His work has appeared in the New York Times, New York Review of Books, Paris Review, lots of places, and he also has a thousand translations for the Marxist Internet Archive. He's a polyglot. He translates from French, Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, and Esperanto. And he's published over a dozen books. This latest, the one that we're talking about in collaboration with Richard Greenman, is in English called Victor Serge's Notebooks, 1936 to 1947. And it's published just now from New York Review of Books. Mitch Abador, welcome. Um, great to be here, Susie. Great. So I think we should start with Victor Serge and talk about who he was before we can talk about what he wrote, in a sense. And, you know, and I, I like to say, you know, when people ask me who he was and why should we care, that this is a man, you know, whose extraordinary life and life experiences really 
serve as testimony to the tumultuous struggles that rocked the whole first half of the 20th century, but raised all the questions that are still pertinent today. Um, And, you know, we can go into that, but just, you know, saying that he was he was a permanent political oppositionist. So let's begin with that. Let's hear your view of how you would describe Victor Serge and his political itinerary. Well, you know, his itinerary is an especially uh, fascinating one, because it involves both political movement and geographic movement, because, as you said, he was he, he was a he was a lifelong exile. He was stateless his entire life. In fact, was buried stateless. Mm-hmm. And and then to make matters even worse, it was only a temporary. He was buried as a, in a Spanish in a Spanish section of a graveyard in Mexico City, and it was only a temporary concession, and then his body was dug up and thrown in a common grave. So he ends up being permanently uh, exiled, even from uh, planet Earth. So, he, But his life was, it was really fascinating. When he was born in 1890 in uh, Brussels to a family of uh, Russian exiles, and he was related uh, distantly even though it was the same last name, his real last name was Kibalchich, to one of the assassins of the, of the Tsar. And so the, the whole tradition, Russian revolutionary tradition, was his from the very beginning. But he began his life as, when he first got into politics as a teenager, as a member of the uh, youth uh, branch of the Belgian Workers' Party, which he and a group of his comrades quit when the Belgian uh, Labour Party, Workers' Party rather, came out in support of the annexation of the Congo, right? And so at that point, at that point, he's a left socialist. And then, in the time left to him, he has another year or two left in Belgium. He starts moving towards anarchism, and in particular, to individualist anarchism. And he's actually, actually uh, interesting story. He's a character witness at the trial of a Belgian anarchist, Belgian Jewish anarchist named Hartman, who Hartman or Hartfeld, who had killed a cop, I believe it was. Victor was a character witness in that trial. Sometime around, uh, around that, it's 1909, he's 19 years old, he leaves Belgium for France. And nobody knows for sure if he was expelled since he was stateless and a troublemaker, or he went on his own to, to France where he became active, where he was active in individualist circles and worked at the newspaper uh, L'Anarchie, the main uh, organ of individualist anarchism in France. And even everything about this newspaper is fascinating, including the, the, the title of the newspaper. Everything's in lowercase, the L and the A in Anarchie, because everything is equal. So even, even the... Uh, the letters had to be equal. Anyways, so he's active in anarchist circles, and among his friends, carried over from Belgium, are people who were members of the Bonneau Gang, the group of anarchist criminal murderers, etc. And uh, he and, and Victor, when, when, they, when they're arrested, Victor too is arrested because he had in his possession, he and his companion, uh, Rirette, Maître Jean had in their possession some guns that supposedly came from a theft. Right. So when the Bonneau gang is, on, is put on trial, Victor is one of them. He doesn't want to have anything to do with his fellow defendants because he thinks that what they've done is, is awful. 
but he's sentenced to five years in jail. And we should just say, you know, that this Bono gang was like the Robin Hood. Of their time, they wanted to steal from the rich but give to the anarchists, not necessarily to well, the poor and to sustain you, themselves. Okay, so Serge spends five years in jail and is then uh, expelled from France, and he goes to Spain. So he's now no longer an individualist anarchist. He's seen that uh, what it leads to in the, in the case of the Bono gang, and he goes to moves to Spain, where he becomes uh, an anarcho-syndicalist, as involved in an uprising in Spain. So now we have his third country and his third different political belief. And then if I could just, you know, interject and tell the listeners as well that, you know, I've written a a political biography of Victor Serge that's come out in two editions. And and Mitch and I, you know, are both fascinated with this figure as many, many, many thousands are around the world because he was such a wonderful writer and able to evoke the ideas, the feelings, the sentiments of those who were involved in changing the world throughout this period. So just to get to the what was at the heart of his life when he was in the the new Soviet Union. It was in Spain, and you can contradict me if you like, Mitch, where Serge saw that the anarchists, though they were in their kind of, I guess, hegemonic in a sense for the left, were manifestly unprepared for power at a time of an uprising. And Serge then turned to the land of his language and, I guess, patronage Russia when they were in revolution in 1917. But go ahead. Right. And, and so that's in Spain, he, he realizes the shortcomings of anarcho-syndicalism. The Russian Revolution takes place and he returns to France so that he could be arrested and deported. Yeah, do you see, but do you see it that he did it in a deliberate way? Because I always yeah. saw it as he was in transit and got arrested. Not no, that he, he... He knew he was going to be arrested because he was violating an, uh, an order. So he went there, actually, uh, you're right, he actually went there hoping to enlist on his own and get over to Russia. But let's cut short, because then then he's put into a concentration camp, and and he's classified as a Bolshevik sympathizer, uh, which was kind of a joke. He said in the camp they all studied and read Marx and what the Bolsheviks were doing and proclaimed themselves as such, but didn't really understand much about it until they— And then he found himself, because I want to get move on in the, uh, in, later into the discussion, that they ended up being exchanged for some prisoners of war that the Bolsheviks had after the revolution that they wanted to exchange with France. And so Ver- Serge is one of those. And it's serendipitous in a way that he should be, you know, in that exchange. But there he is. And he arrives in Russia, the land of revolution, but in a period of a cold, miserable winter at the end of the uh, glory days, let's say, 1918, right. 1919, January. Right, and he's, he almost immediately gets a job with the, with the Communist International, working with Zinoviev, and he uh, becomes a member of the French, uh, the French uh, section living in, in, the, in Soviet Russia, and he works for the Comintern, as a, uh, and he writes some really important articles on both the situation in Russia and on you know hopes for the future and but he makes clear while he's in his early writings there that he's that he's a bolshevik but of libertarian uh, that is anarchist leanings Okay, so, and let's just, I'll come in on this, because he decided when he got to Russia that he was not only going to stand with the Bolsheviks because he saw them as being able to put their theory into practice, whereas everybody else could either pass resolutions or or be ineffective. The Bolsheviks were effective. But he then saw his role as winning over anarchists and others like himself to this cause. 
And what we know now, I just want to say quickly, he was profoundly, I think, correct because the, what all of the scholarship that's come out shows that, you know, the Russian Revolution was profoundly the democratic work of the, of the Russian working class and peasants. And it, the Bolsheviks were chosen because they reflected the, chosen by the class to represent them in this way, because they represented these democratic aspirations and view of the new society. And that's not to say it really deteriorated. We're not going to spend the entire time talking about what happened in the Soviet Union. But in this early revolutionary period, it would be hard not to be infected by this revolutionary mentality. Right. And, you know, although when you read the anarchist press at the time, he, what he was telling people in private was not exactly what he was writing, but we don't, we don't have to, to go too deeply into that. But Amen, he's, but he's, but he's a, on the surface anyway, he's a perfectly loyal Bolshevik. He's writing uh, for uh, Comintern papers in French. The articles are being translated into other languages. Lenin dies, and then comes the rise of Stalin, and he sides with Trotsky. And I'm going to say here, so we've got a man who's participated in three revolutions in his lifetime, right. Victor Serge. We'll find out. He's already spent four to five years in a, a French prison and a, 18 months in a French concentration camp. He spent many more years in uh, the Gulag in the Soviet Union, so a full decade of his life. Mentioned that he was born in one political exile. He died in another. He was born in Belgium and died in Mexico. And he left behind him a wealth of writings, novels, histories, and so much more. And it is his writing that makes him known to the world and loved by the world. But what you're hearing from both Mitch Abador and myself is that Victor Serge was a permanent political oppositionist. So he first opposed capitalism as an anarchist, then as a Bolshevik. Then he opposed Bolshevism's undemocratic practices. Then he opposed Stalin as a left oppositionist. He even argued later with Trotsky, the the figurehead of the left opposition from within the anti-Stalinist left, and then he opposed fascism and capitalism's Cold War at the end of his life as what I would call an unrepentant revolutionary Marxist who wanted to see a new society based on human dignity and democracy and freedom. But Mitch and I may not agree on this, but let's move into a little more of his life and then move into some of the things that he's left behind in this extraordinary uh, notebooks. Right. So, so he's uh, due to his uh, opposite, his support of Trotsky, he gets sent to camp in the in the Urals, and he's one of the lucky few. This is an international campaign to get him released. Andre Gide, the great French writer, was one of the the main voices in that. And Serge is released from the the camp in the Urals, and he goes back to he's sent back to Belgium, moves to France. And he's there, and, he, and he's struggling, and he's writing uh, against Stalin and against what's going on, uh, what Stalin is doing to the revolution. And when the war breaks out, he's, uh, again, among the lucky few, and he's able, thanks to Varian Fry and the, his group that uh, helped get exiles out, he leaves, he wasn't able to get a visa to America, which he was hoping for, but he does get an, uh, a visa Mexico. And Mexico has become the the place where refugees were welcomed. It, that used to belong to France, but in, in the New World, it belonged to Mexico, welcomed every stripe of expelled members of the PUM in Spain, who had been defeated by Franco, from the Germans, from the French, and there was a vibrant culture in Mexico. Before that, I want to say, though, to in Paris, Serge, as a left oppositionist, 
teamed up with Leon Sadov, the son of Trotsky, and they valiantly tried to hold a counter trial, as Dewey did in Mexico, to speak up against the lies that were coming from uh, Moscow that Stalin was now proclaiming Trotsky to be, you know, the super Judas, the agent of the Gestapo, the devil incarnate, and killing millions. Let's put it this way. Any oppositionist that was either real, imagined, or potential and labeled as a Trotskyist. And so there were very few people in the world who could counter that. Most of the the most dominant organizations of the left around the world were communist parties, and they took the line from the Soviet Union and waged their own campaign against those they thought were Trotskyist. And that meant that the publishing houses were closed for the most part, and these and this the it was very hard to get anybody to see the truth about what was happening. It took till first Khrushchev's, uh, you know, secret speech and then the dissolution of the Soviet Union for people around the world to realize that what Victor Serge and Trotsky and the others were saying in the 1930s was right. Right. And, you know, and but also it also needs to be said that that once he was uh, out of the Soviet Union, he began to to distance himself from formal Trotskyism. And he wrote, you know, there's a, this correspondence between him and Trotsky that's fascinating. And there's some great stuff in the, the notebooks about visiting with uh, Trotsky's widow afterwards. It's really uh, poignant, too. And I. Right. <laughs> This is a big subject for me, Mitch, so I keep interrupting, you know, because the differences that emerged between these two survivors of the revolution and the revolutionary generation and of the left opposition were tragic. And I've uncovered information of the role of the uh, Soviet secret police in planting lies and and sowing um, discord in order to uh, distance themselves. But even beyond that, they had real disagreements, but I don't see them of the kind of nature that would naturally split them so far apart. But unfortunately, that is what happened. Well, you know, actually, I'd like to read something from the notebooks that I think is really interesting. This is something that he wrote in 1943. He says, in the Stalin-Trotsky duel, Trotsky was fatally ill-served by his superiority. He possessed all of Stalin's qualities with, in addition, a more elevated modern intelligence the nature of a great humanist, imagination, inflexible moral rectitude, and a great imperious idealism. It was the fight of the honest pugilist who was suddenly stabbed in the back, that of a great man ahead of his time who never tires of appealing to men's higher capacities, rational intelligence, and disinterested idealism. And And this is long after he's he's split with, uh, with Trotsky over a number of issues, but he never stopped admiring. I was going to say the same thing. He loved the old man, as he called him. Right. He, he became friends and, and visited his widow, Natalia Ivanovna. And, and these are very poignant things. And let's just get, uh, Mitch, because we've talked uh, for quite a while about his life. We could say that one other thing, that Serge was always desperately poor and right. out of place in Mexico, an amazing observer of Mexico. And he right. tried to organize a group there with his son, Vladi, and others. Um, we can get into that a bit, but I think that, um, you know, the, when I wrote my book, I, I, I made it focus on his Soviet sojourn because I saw that as the most important political part of his life. And that was as a lifelong, uh, you know, in a lifelong struggle for human freedom, 
that could only be realized under socialism. And, you know, and, and he never, ever uh, retreated from that. And so it was important. And he, and he documented and like Trotsky, who, you know, in the end paid everything for his fight with Stalin and never stopped fighting. So these are two of the great anti-Stalinist fighters um, who also refused to make any, um, you know, compromise with capitalism. So they were renegades and in Serge's case, uh, had all sides opposed to him. So did Trotsky, but it, 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 but he wasn't as famous as Trotsky. Well, and, and I think you know, there's something here. You know, another passage that I think is really fascinating, and, and I think that it shows, in a sense, Serge at at his best, because he hated Stalin and, and Stalinism with a with an absolute passion. But there's a section in the in the notebooks where he's talking about great men. Mm. And he's discussing Hitler and Stalin as great men, you know, in a historical sense. Mm-hmm. And he, when he comparing Stalin to Hitler, uh, this is what Serge had to say. Stalin has to a far greater extent the stuff of an authentically great man, it being understood that there are great men with vastly different qualities. He is mediocre and bloodthirsty, but he is a product of a great socialist, that is, progressive revolution, while Hitler is born of the decomposition of German and European capitalism, of a surge of savage energy in a society playing its final card for, sal- for salvation. So that even though he uh, hated Stalin, that he's able, you know, here in the, here in the notebooks, and then again in uh, the case of Comrade Tulayev... I was going to just bring that up. Go ahead. To bring, to bring you know, to, to recognize that Stalin was in his own perverted way a revolutionary. I and think though you know, a revolution uh, a revolutionary society. Well, I think that in this case he sees Stalin as someone who was forged by the conditions and the times right. and that's a view of the role of man in history. And right. in this case though, Stalin came to represent the democracy, I mean sorry, the bureaucracy in and he um held on to power at all costs and be- and began to look at everyone with distrust and saw sabotage all around him. And the portrait in Serge's great novel, The Case of Comrade Tulayev, I think can only be described as dialectical in really understanding what made Stalin tick. Although, you know, he was the he was, if, if nothing else, the mass murderer of the 20th century. Um, and then, so go ahead now. Let's talk right. a little bit, uh, Mitch, about how the notebooks were found. When I was doing my research for the uh, biography, I read all the papers in the archives and spoke to many people. But I only had, you know, the notebooks that had been published. I did not. I I tried to get these, but I didn't get these. So let's talk about how these uh, were were found. Right, and, and actually, you know the. The notebooks, this edition, which is quite, it's 800 pages in the French edition, and it's 600, 594 pages uh, of text in this new edition. But it actually has a really complicated and lengthy publication history, because it was, the, the notebooks were first published in French in 1952, but earlier than that, there were sections of it that had been published in Sartre's uh, Les Tomes Down, and they were actually I, also in the New International back exactly. then, just excerpts, and, and, right? And and, it's, and so they've been published in chunks of them have been published in English uh, in the fifties, in the late forties, and in the and in the fifties. 
So it was, but it wasn't until and then the, the it was 1952 it was first published in French. Then there was a, another edition in 1985, and that's the and that's the edition that most of us have known until uh, 2012, I think it is, when uh, Agon, the small house in uh, Marseille, published this fuller edition, which was the result of Claudio Albertani. And uh, Jean-Guy Renz. There was one little episode before that that I have to give credit to a Scottish teacher um, who I knew. And he published, a, he was a, an English teacher and he had a, a, a journal of poetry called Sincrastus. And he translated right. from the French edition uh, many of the entries and published them in his poetic journal right. in the late 70s, early 80s. Right. So that you know, it's been kicking around, and, but even now, and so so these uh, so the, there was found, as you said at the at the top of the show, with Lorette's papers, his uh, his third wife's papers, were all these other uh, sections of the the notebooks, and so this is probably if it, it's it's certainly the most complete version that's going to be published. Can't imagine anybody's going to go back to it. I don't doubt for a second that there's more stuff. In it because in in uh, in the archives in Mexico, because there are so many things that aren't mentioned in in the notebooks, in particular his marital woes. So this is much more of a political and artistic notebook than it is a, a personal notebook. I want to say as well, though, it's got a lot of that in there. When I was researching for the biography, there was scant material about Serge's three marriages. Um, some references, but he mainly, you know, as most of the writers of the time, concentrated on the political and not the personal. Um, it came, but the personal comes through in all. It, it, he has extraordinary vignettes of the people that he met that one can find in his memoirs. But now we see much more developed here in the notebooks. And when I was in Mexico, I have to say this in in. Uh, I think it was the late. It was in the eighties. I met Serge's daughter and his son, of course. But the daughter took me to um, meet with Serge's third wife, Lorette Sejourné, and I. And she had told me, Janine, that the that Lorette had uh, a trunk of letters from Serge, and that I should get them from her. But as you say, there was marital discord. She was remarried. This was many years later. She was an anthropologist, and she didn't think Serge was important. And she kind of dismissed me and my work and uh, refused to let me see it. Right, and and you know, and it, it's so even though there's nothing really directly that says how just how troubled the marriage is, there's all along there's there's her delays in coming over uh, to join him and. Uh, mentions of uh, you just pick up that there's a feeling that this is not a very happy marriage, right? But, but what what I think is especially fascinating about the notebooks and why I loved reading them and why I loved translating them was that uh, what I, in a sense the the book is a Victor Serge sampler because it's got every Serge was a really versatile writer. He was a novelist, he was a poet, he was a, a memoirist, and he was a political analyst. And all of that shows up in one way or another in, in the notebooks. So, for example, he, the, the, among the really astounding, really uh, touching sections of the book are 
when he reminisces about people like Jacques Doriot, who was the leader of the collaborationist, was the leader of the largest fascist party in France, but had been a communist leader. And so Serge knew him as a communist, and again, he, his, his ability to look at, every, at people, even enemies like Doriot, as human beings living in a time, in a place, and reacting to a situation, and not simply dismissing them as, as monsters. That uh, is, I won't go as far as to say he, he, he used Jean Renoir's great line in uh, Rules of the Game that everybody has his reasons, but he doesn't uh, just dismiss people as, well, you know, he was a fascist and there's no point in discussing him. Because there's something to be learned from the itinerary of Adorio, who goes from being a communist to a fascist, or even his ability to write, uh, not sympathetically, but understandingly about a Stalin. Mm-hmm. And so, 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 but in the notebooks, you have passages that would later on show up in his fiction, word for word. Right. You have other passages that would show up in political articles, word and, for word. And almost, I mean, I was just look, reviewing this morning all of the stuff that he wrote about Trotsky, you know, and that shows up in one way or another in his writings, as you mentioned, um, in the memoirs and elsewhere. But it's these vignettes, too, that he writes a lot of obituaries because a lot of people right. were dying and dying unnaturally. And people would, you know, spent their life in struggle. Or even someone like Vera Figner, who was one of the early, you know, uh, a populist anarchists in Russia, along with Serge's distant uncle, who, you know, laid the, who assassinated the Tsar and were hung for it. But she managed to live till she was 90. And he translated her works and talks about her dignity and her uh, and her life. And another one that, you know, I mean, I have to say, and, and I'm close to this material, but many times I was brought to tears by his his uh, uh, obits in this one, uh, Parajanin, you know, where he, you can just see how in just a line or two, Serge can recall the entire person. And he talked about meeting him and, uh, after his exile and saying, uh, Parige opened the door to us, thickened his eyelids heavy, a bit confused since he received few visits. The wallpaper was the color of poverty. There were books on a minuscule table, manuscripts scattered on a bed, a bottle of cheap wine at the foot of the bed. He breathed defeat, disgust with life, and solitude. What is left? to be done and what's the use and then it goes and oh he just says and when you're neither an arrivista clown nor a hustler able to extract hundred and thousand franc notes from publishers fin financed by the real bastards and he goes on and discusses what happens when you're left alone with your ideas in a period of immense defeat and i i really encourage the listeners to pick this book up just for that maybe um uh, Mitch, we could talk a little bit about also how much the geography is uh, is a part of the uh, this his his perceptions of Mexico, for example. Right, and because you know that when you read the book, one thing that that stands out is how he lived as a European with Europeans in Mexico. But Mexico is nevertheless a really important character in the book. And it's the Mexican landscape, and it's Mexican architecture, and it's Mexican art, and it's the Mexican people that matter to Victor. And he, and he has beautiful, really stunning passages that, uh, you know, I have to confess, and I want to just talk to a second about the translation process here, were not easy to translate. <laughs> 
because Victor could be a really beautiful, dense, poetic writer. And so that I translated this book in collaboration with Richard Greenman, who is, is responsible for bringing back all of Victor's novels, uh, Serge's novels, rather, sorry, to, uh, into, in, in English. He's even correct, uh, working now on revising uh, one that he didn't translate, one that Ralph Mannheim translated. And so we developed a really interesting method, which is uh, I did the, the bulk of I did the heavy lifting and translated, did the complete translation, did uh, four revisions of it, and then sent it on to Richard, who was then able to fine-tune it. So these passages that are these beautiful passages with this descriptions of the of Mexican scenery and the sea when he's coming over to Mexico, you know, I have to give Richard uh, most of the credit for, for passages like that. So Mexico, you know, figures there. Politically, what go, what's going on in Mexico politically doesn't really get, get addressed. The only time it comes up is mentions of the communists, and how they're trying to kill him. Well, they and were, they, and they... And they were, it, and they were. They tried, they tried to kill Trotsky, and... Uh, they did kill Trotsky. So, but also he travels around with uh, Mexico, with the de Manils, who yes. uh, were extremely wealthy American couple. And, uh, but, it, I mean, those passages really stand out in a different way. Like I said, this is part of the, the sampler aspect, where, where Serge is, is exercising his chops now as a literary writer, not as a political writer. And these passages exist alongside or even, you know, on the same day as passages where he's talking about, uh, you know, political events in Europe uh, and around the world. But something else that's really, really, really impressive when you, when you, when you read this is how well, well and widely read Serge was, that he was a political person his entire life, but the, but, and he wrote fabulous novels, but he also had a terrific appreciation for other people's writings, and not necessarily, or not just, you know, people who are well-known. I mean, what impressed me when I first read this, and my eyes, frankly, popped out of my head, was he has this really sad passage uh, in 1946, about the death of the French poet, French-Romanian poet, uh, Benjamin Fondan. Not a very well-known figure, even in life. He was uh, killed in Auschwitz. But it's a beautiful, again, to use your word, Susie, vignette. And he ends by, with these be- two beautiful lines. Poet and essayist of anguish, Benjamin Fondan met his end in the gas chamber taking the measure of the greatest anguish of the present time. Mm. And it's, it's, it's just startling that he was able to, along with his active political life and trying to make money because he was like living in such poverty, that he was still keeping up with literary reading just because he loved literature. It's also, and I just want to say, he was also reading Eric Fromm and trying to, he was uh, fascinated that psychoanalytic theory was taking off and starting to bring understanding to some of the things that he encountered, including this thing that in Russian is called partinost, or party patriotism. How was it that Trotsky could confine his struggle against Stalin to the one place where it couldn't succeed in the party? And why didn't he 
take it out of the party. And then he tries to explain this notion of the party. And he talks to the others in exile from the German Revolution, from the Spanish Revolution in in Mexico about this uh, party spirit or this sense. And he's really grappling with it. And it's, it's you know, and I say that Serge all, sometimes was wrong, but he had a penetrating intellect. And he, you know, explored all of these things. And one cannot fault him for getting things wrong. He was grappling with the contours of a new world in process of becoming. So it was hard in the middle of the war to see how it would end or to see the resilience of capitalism for that matter or, you know, later things. But what we see in Victor Surge, we get a real sense of the time, as I said before, and it's it's incredibly evocative, but it's also intellectually very stimulating. And I really do encourage people to pick up his writing. We remember him for his intellectual richness and the moral insights that he brings to all of our understanding of the significant struggles of the time. But it's also his principled revolutionary life. One thing that he did say, you know, and I just saying it from memory, he talks about Mexican earthquakes and he says he's used to human earthquakes, but these new ones, you know, they're unsettling. And of course, that's the case. Mitch, we've almost run out of time. Let's have a, a final word about the importance of Victor Surgeon and, and why people should read the notebooks. Well, you know, and there was this, this really what I think is the uh, essential thing in, in the notebooks, which is insistence on just as throughout his life, when circumstances changed in the world, he was willing and able to change his way of, of uh, seeing how change could be uh, implemented in that changed world. But his insistence at the end for the need to do away with outmoded schemas uh, in socialism. So I just want to close them with a passage. Many socialists continue to pose problems in strictly traditional, if not routine, terms. The schemas they have in mind are those of 1917 and 18, and even 1871, as if events were going to repeat themselves. Hmm. So, and he also this, talked about how crazy it was that there were people were still using this outmoded language. Exactly, and you know, and so I think that you know, I think you've said it well, Susie. So here's a guy who remained faithful to his ideas and faithful to the idea that the world can be changed, but was insistent that we look at, uh, that we can't just carry what was done by the Paris Commune or view the world through the lens of the Paris Commune or even the Bolsheviks. Or the, the Russian where Revolution. That, right, where, where, where that stuff no longer attained. That those who expected the revolution to, to grow out of World War II the way it did out of World War I, with deluding themselves. You don't have to be deluded and give up hope. You don't have to fight delusion and give up hope. And I think that's a great place to end it. I just want to say he was an optimist, a historical optimist, and he always believed that it would be impossible to repress this human impulse for freedom and for control over oneself. And he thought that people would rise up over and over again and insisted that the economy be put at the service of the community and not the reverse. Mitch Abador, thank you so much for translating Surge, for bringing your insights to him. For the listeners, this is the New York Review of Books it's called Notebooks, 1936-1947. Uh, it's by Victor Serge. It's a treasure trove, and I hope it's an opening for those who read it to reading all of his great novels and histories. 
Mitch is a translator and a writer. He's written lots of books, and he translates from many languages. And this is his latest effort. And I want to thank you so much for being with us today, Mitch Abador. And thank you, Susie. This was a great conversation. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Mm-hmm.